Our God and Father, we're so thankful for who you are and we're thankful for all that you do. You are alone, our God, and we worship you as such. You alone are God and there is no other. And how I pray, Father, that in the depths of our hearts, we would not even entertain other gods in our lives. How I pray that we would take up our crosses every day of our lives and die to ourselves that we might live to you. You alone are glorious. You alone are infinite. You alone are all-wise. You alone are all-powerful. You alone created the heavens and the earth. And you alone deserve our worship and our praise and our adoration and our obedience and our lives. Everything else is a deception, Lord. And so I pray that you would wake us up and teach us to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Father, I pray that as I offer this word to the people this morning, that you would use it to wake us up to the things of the Spirit. Lord, in so many ways we fall asleep to you, and we fall asleep to the things of your kingdom, but I pray that you would use the Word of God to wake us up. Give us eyes to see, O Lord. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart that longs for the things of Christ, and that longs to lay our lives down for the glory of Christ. So please, Lord, come now and help us. Help me as I speak, and help all of us as we listen. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing now in your sight, our Lord and God. And it's in your great name that we pray these things. Amen. Before I get into my message this morning, I just want to take a couple minutes and give thanks to the Lord. When uh, we were first transitioning into, uh, from being a small group into being a church plant, I met with a couple church planting pastors in the area. And both of them told me, lovingly but honestly, that there was really nothing here for us to worship in. They told me that there was already a church in every school in the area, and basically both of them said to me, good luck, and uh, God bless you. And um, Kevin and I began to search in earnest maybe two months ago for a spot, and we were finding exactly what they said, not much. And uh, one day the Lord just put it on Kevin's heart to come up here to Elk River and talk to some people. And within an hour or so, he was standing in the Hankey Center. And by the end of that day, we had details to work out, but this place was ours. And I'm just so touched by the provision of God for us. He made a way where everyone was saying, there is no way. And we shouldn't take this for granted. Isn't this a beautiful space? It's just beautiful. When you lift this thing up, this place is just huge. And if the Lord would bless us, we could really grow in this place. There's plenty of classrooms. Everybody in the area knows Main Street and Proctor. Everybody knows it. And the Lord has just really blessed us. So let's just take a a moment and just give thanks to the Lord. And then I'll get into my message. Why don't two or three of you just pray and give your thanks to the Lord. And then I'll close us. Lord, there's an old saying that says, where you guide, you provide. And you have pointed us in this way, and several times we have stopped to search our hearts and say, should we even be planning a church in this area? And each time you have confirmed the direction. 
And this building is a sign of your confirmation upon us. This building is like the smile of God upon us. And we're so thankful for it, Father. And we pray that we would be good stewards of this place, Lord. We pray that we would use it to maximize your glory. And as we prayed in the pre-service prayer this morning, I pray again. I pray that this gym would become like a womb where people walk in as dead people and walk out made alive together with Christ. May many people be born again here in this room for the glory of your name and the good of your church. Now again, Lord, we just want to say thank you and blessed be your name. And I pray that you'd be with me now as I bring this word from Ephesians. Amen. Well, over the last several weeks, we've been meditating on Ephesians 2.11 through 3.13. And we've been learning more about how God worked salvation out for all of the nations of the world. And we've been considering these things in terms of steps that God took or stages in the process of working salvation out for the world. The first stage or the first step was this. In light of an utterly sinful humanity, all of the nations of the world who deserve nothing but the wrath of God, God freely and sovereignly chose for Himself one people out of all the peoples of the world, and He gave to them His promises and His covenants and His law, and He blessed them. And that people, of course, was the Jewish people. And the point of His work in them was to purify them and to prepare them for step number two, which is this. When the time was full and when the work of purification and preparation was complete, God sent Jesus Christ, very God of very God, into the world, into the Jewish culture, so that through Him all the nations might believe and come to God. In His righteous life He fulfilled the law, and in His death He made atonement for all of us who are lawbreakers. And in this way, if you remember a couple weeks ago, the Bible says, Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And now, in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles can be united together, and together can be reconciled to God. Step number three, which we talked about last week, then, was this. After the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, God revealed the details of His glorious plan to the apostles and prophets And he had them fix the scope and the meaning of the gospel in writing. And that writing we call the New Testament. And as I said last week, God gave us the New Testament for three reasons, many reasons, but I shared three with you last time. To reveal the great and glorious truths of the gospel, to stand as an objective witness against unbelief, and then finally he gave it to us to ground the church in truth and to protect the church from error. And now for today, here's step four. Jesus Christ sent his followers into all the world to spread the good news of the mercy of God in Christ so that some persons from every tribe and tongue and language and nation would believe in him and worship him forever and ever and ever. This step began in earnest in Jerusalem when 120 believers were gathered in a room praying together in Acts chapter 2. You probably remember this story. And what happened as they were there praying? Well, the Holy Spirit came upon them in great power. And the Bible says, as in tongues of fire landed upon them. And they began to speak languages that they did not know. They began miraculously to be able to speak fluently in foreign languages. And the significance of that 
is not to be found in the fact that they spoke languages they didn't know, but more so in the fact that other people who were visiting Jerusalem at that time heard what they were saying in their own native language. You see, at that time, Jews from all over the world were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate what they called the Feast of Weeks, or the Day of Pentecost. And those people did not, by and large, speak Hebrew or Aramaic, which the Jerusalem Jews spoke. And so, when the Holy Spirit allowed the, the 120 apostles and disciples to begin speaking in languages that they did not know, the miracle was that people from all over the world heard and understood in their own language what was being proclaimed. And chiefly, what was being proclaimed is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you'll believe in Him, you'll be reconciled to God. And the result was that 3,000 men plus women and children were saved in one day. And not too long later, Peter was preaching again, and what happened? Another 5,000 men plus women and children were saved again just in one sermon. And so in a very short span of time, over 10,000 people were saved. And they began to disperse back to the places where they lived all over the world. And wherever they went, they brought the gospel with them. And not too long after that, following on their heels, teams of apostles began to go from village to village and city to city and preaching the good news of the glory of Jesus Christ. And many people were saved and believers were built up and churches were founded all over the known world. And as the apostles founded churches, they taught those believers to likewise share the gospel with lost people. Even as the message had come to them, now they were to go out into the world and share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so it is that the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. In fact, at one time, the gospel even reached the distant shores of a land that's now called the United States of America. It doesn't seem too miraculous to us now, but it really is miraculous that this message spread by foot mainly and by ship, I suppose, from Jerusalem all the way to our land. And one person shared the gospel with another, who shared the gospel with another, who shared it with another, and now here we all sit. And those of us who were saved were saved because Jesus Christ sent disciples into the world to share the good news of God in Christ. The mercy of God pouring into our lives through Jesus Christ. And now the joy and the privilege of sharing that gospel lays on our shoulders. And the Lord says, Go. In step three, I said that God gave the New Testament to us to root us in truth and protect us from error. Another way that you could state step four is to say that God gave us the New Testament not only to root us and protect us, but to propel us into the world with the beautiful and glorious message of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ, telling everybody we know and everywhere we go that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what I want to talk with you about today. I want to talk with you about the nature of our going into the world to proclaim the glory of the things that have captured our own hearts, that have captured our own lives, that have transformed our lives. Amen? I don't know how you feel when you think about your life in Christ, but when I think about my life in Christ, I think He has totally transformed my life. He has completely made me a new man, and I'm so grateful to Him. And now He says, Charlie, go and share with someone else what has been shared with you. So let's begin by looking again at Ephesians 3, 7. If you'll look, we'll just read three verses. 
Ephesians 3, 7 through 9. Of this gospel, I, Paul, was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, I'm aware that Paul is talking here about his life and his ministry in particular, and in some ways the calling that was on Paul's life was unique to him. He had a very special calling, a very unique calling that none of us will ever have. But I think that it's fair to say that we ought to perpetuate in our lives and ministries what Paul felt compelled to perpetuate in his life and ministry. And basically, there were two main components that Paul points out in these verses. Number one is the unsearchable riches of Christ. And number two is the plan of God for the nations of the world. So if you were to ask Paul, Paul, what is the content of your ministry? What is it that you feel called and compelled to do? He would say to reveal the unsearchable riches of Christ and the plan of God for the nations of the world. And even as that was his ministry, it ought to a great extent become our ministry. So let's spend a little time considering this phrase, the unsearchable riches of Christ. I just absolutely love that phrase, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Do you know what that means? That phrase does not mean that Christ cannot be searched. It doesn't mean that He can't be sought. It doesn't mean that we can't explore Christ. What it means is that in our searching of Him, we will never come to the end of Christ. We will never come to a place where we have exhausted the magnitude of the being of Christ. We will come to a place in our lives where we have learned everything that there is to learn about Christ where we have known everything that there is to know about Christ. I remember when I I first came to the Lord, I was walking with Him maybe a year or two, and uh, I thought to myself one day, I thought, how am I going to get a lifetime out of this? I mean, it just seems like, you know, one or two years into it, I've kind of heard everything. I've read the Bible a couple times, and, and that was just the silliest thought that I ever had in my life. The riches of Christ are absolutely unsearchable, and the more that I've walked with Him, the more that I have come to see that that is true. Jesus Christ is infinitely great. He's infinitely glorious. He's infinitely powerful. And we will never come to the end of Christ, though He give us all eternity. That's what it means to say the unsearchable riches of Christ. He is inexhaustible. I wonder how long you think it would take to explore the entire earth If all you did six days a week, and then you took the seventh day off, was to explore the earth, I wonder how long it would take. If you went to the top of every single mountain, and climbed every hill, and explored every valley, and every plain, and you went down every river, and looked at every lake, and every ocean, and you found, boys, you'll like this especially, what if you went and found every bug in the world? What if you searched out every animal in the world? What if you went to every city and village to meet every person that exists in this world? I wonder how long it would take if all you did all your life was explore the earth. Well, I don't know how long it would be, but I bet you'd take a very long time. Do you agree? It would take a very long time to explore the earth. And the earth is just a little tiny speck 
in the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy, probably 25 to 30,000 light years across, is just a little tiny speck in the vast expanse of the universe. And the whole universe is just a little tiny speck in the hand of God. So great and so vast, so immeasurable is our God. And Jesus Christ is God. The Bible says He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He has no beginning of days. He will have no end of days. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is quite literally unsearchable. So, when we proclaim the Gospel in the world, what are we supposed to proclaim? Number one is the unsearchable riches of Christ. When we share the Gospel with other people, friends, we should talk to them about the magnitude and the magnificence of the being of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't go shallow with people. Try to help them see this is a great God we're talking about. This is no tribal deity that we're talking about. Now, in order for us to share the unsearchable riches of Christ with other people, we've got to plumb into the depths of those things ourselves, don't we? You can't talk with someone else about something that you don't know yourself. And so to help you with that a little bit, I want to give you a suggestion. Um, This won't be new to a lot of you, but I still want to urge you to do it. And that is simply just to read old Christian books. Besides the Bible, you ought to be reading the Bible every single day of your life. Just make time. You've got time, make time. Be in the book. And then besides the Bible, I would strongly urge you to read old Christian books. And especially the Puritan books. The Puritans have got a bad rap in our culture today, but they are really an amazing group of people. J.I. Packer, who is a leading theologian of our generation, calls them the towering redwoods of Christian history. And I think he's really right there in his assessment. The Puritans, uh, by the grace of God, are just so amazingly able to take us into the depths of Christ in a way that very few other people are able to do, and certainly in a way that much modern writing is not able to do. So I want to compare for a second modern writing to Puritan writing. And uh, a a metaphor that came to my mind this morning was to think of modern writing like a glass-bottomed boat and a Puritan writing like a submarine that is designed to take you way deep into the ocean. A glass-bottomed boat is designed to do. It's designed to skim you across the surface of the ocean, right? And you can look down into it and you can see the ocean, but you can't be immersed in it. It's not designed to immerse you in it. It's designed to help you admire the ocean, but not to get down into it. And much modern writing is just like that. A lot of modern writing, in my assessment, does a great job of skimming us across the surface of things and it helps us to look down into it, but it's, to me, unable to take us down into the depths of Christ. On the other hand, a submarine is designed to dive people down into the depths of the ocean so that they're completely submerged in it, so that all of their senses are captured by it, so that their heart pulses with the sense of the greatness and the magnitude of the ocean in which they are. Have any of you ever been in a submarine by any chance? Even even the one at Disneyland, I know Disneyland is not a real popular spot from here, but in Southern California, everybody goes to Disneyland, and they have this silly little submarine that you go around in, and I'll tell you, just feel captured by the sense of being immersed in the waters. A lot of Puritan writing is just like that. It brings us down into the depths of Christ, and the reason is that these writers went down into those depths themselves. 
And then God gave them a really amazing ability to lead other people where they themselves had gone. Now, same way that a submarine can't just dive quickly into the water because of the, the mounting pressure on the submarine, we cannot quickly reach into the depths of Christ, can we? This is not a, a microwave thing. This takes time. It will take time and patience and effort and diligence to get into the depths of Christ. But with these graces working in our lives, we can, in fact, get there. And then once we're there, just like a submarine, we will not easily be able to come up out of the water. We will hear and see what the culture has to offer. And the more we go into the depths of Christ, the more that the culture will seem to us as it seems to God which is just a shallow deception, a shallow death-producing deception. Once we are in the depths of Christ, we will not easily be removed from those depths. And the deeper we go in, the harder it will be for us to come out of those depths. Right now, I am reading this book. It's from a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Consentment. I'm just in the third chapter. I know, Mike, you're reading this book as well, and I'm sure you would agree with me. This is an amazing book. Almost every page is just dripping with the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's already made such an impact on my life, and I'm sure it's one that I'll read again and again. So this might be a good place for you to start. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. Especially if you're going through a time of suffering or difficulty in your life, I'm telling you, I don't think there's a book besides the Bible that I think would help you more than this book. Or if you want to get yourself ready for a time of suffering that might be coming, and probably for all of us, eventually it will come, this would help you to put an anchor in your soul to Jesus Christ. So this may be a good place to start, and maybe it's not. But one way or the other, the bottom line of what I'm trying to share with you this morning is this. Learn to plumb the depths of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Please, do not be shallow people. This, this world is already full of shallow people, and it doesn't need more shallow people. And I don't want to say this too harshly, but, but I, I think I would just have to honestly say the world is already full enough of churches that are pretty much just skimming the surface. They're pretty much just shallow churches. We don't need any more churches like that. So let's be a deep people. Learn to dive deep into the unsearchable riches of Christ in your lives. Please do not be shallow people. Learn to love the depths of Christ and to be completely submerged in them. And I'll tell you, doing that has everything to do with your ability to proclaim the gospel in the world because our own experience of Christ becomes the deep fountain from which we share Christ with other people. Our own deep and deepening experience of Christ becomes the source and the content of our ability to share Christ with other people. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that as you go deep into the depths of Christ, that you share with lost people every detail of what the Lord is showing to you. Sometimes it's good for us to begin at the beginning with people. But I would say that it's like a professor of history who's teaching an introductory course, semester in and semester out. His own um, passion for and deepening knowledge of his subject displays itself in the excitement with which he teaches even introductory courses. So the more he's passionate about all of history, the more passionately he presents any part of history, even if it's just very basic to him. His continual exploration of it keeps him from being bored with it. And because he's not bored with it, there's an excitement coming out of him when he shares. And it's just like that with us 
when we are transfixed with the being and the beauty of Jesus Christ, when we are learning more things about Him and deeper things about Him and new things about Him, there will just be an excitement in us, a joy in us, an honesty in us, an authenticity, a persuasiveness in us when we share Christ with others. Inasmuch as we are caught up in the depths of Christ, we will speak with passion even about the basic things of Christ. So I would, like, I would, I would describe it this way. Would you rather hear a lecture from a scientist who knows everything there is to know about the boundary waters, for instance, but has never been there, has never tasted the glory of it, has never spent a night in the boundary waters, or would you rather hear from someone who knows not everything about it, but he knows a lot about it, but he's been there many times, and he's portaged on many lakes, and he's tasted the beauty of the place, and now he wants to share with you the passion that's in his heart. Well, I'll bet you, you would much rather hear from the person who has passion about a thing than someone who's just presenting facts about it. And so it's the same way with us. When we uh, plumb into the depths of Christ, we become much, much more effective in sharing Christ. There is nothing in the world that's so persuasive as a person who is giving a testimony and their heart is just continually being captured by the being and the beauty of Christ. It's the capture of your heart that will be persuasive when you share Him with other people. When you taste the wonder of who Christ is and you just honestly share from that wonder, people will be persuaded. They will be moved by what you have to say. Now, I think that it's good for us to learn basic and maybe I would even say packaged ways of sharing the gospel. In other words, to learn tracks like John Piper's Quest for Joy. It's a great thing. Or an older one, Bill Bright's Steps, uh, not Steps to Peace with God, what is it? The Four Spiritual Laws. Or D. James Kennedy's Evangelism Explosion stuff. Or a newer one, Ray Comfort's Way the Master stuff. It's good for us to learn those things. Learning to share the gospel in a sort of packaged way helps us because then we're always ready to give a reason for the hope that lies inside of us. And we're always ready to tell someone else how that hope can live inside of them. And so I think that's very good. I would strongly encourage you, there's so much material like that out there today, I would strongly encourage you to find one or two that work for you and learn it. Learn to articulate the gospel in a so-called packaged way. In a one, two, three, four, come to Christ kind of a way. It's important for us to learn those things because they're easy for our memory and they're easy for others to comprehend. But what I'm saying here this morning is please don't stop there. Don't leave your exploration of Christ at that. The deep fountain of your passion for sharing Christ with other people, again, is your own exploration of the unsearchable riches of Christ. The deeper you go, the more passionate and powerful you will be in your sharing. The more that we're caught up in exploring Him and loving Him and meditating on Him and serving Him with all of our lives, the more that we will naturally grow in our passion to share Him with others. Aren't you more likely to talk with other people about something that excites you than you are about something you just, you know, you just know about it, but you're not particularly motivated to tell anybody? But if something really excites you, you almost have to go and tell someone or your joy is just not complete. So all I'm saying is plumb into the depths because that becomes the fountain from which you can share. And when you do share, people sense from you that this isn't just a surfacey, 
sort of a sales presentation kind of a thing that's coming from you. They will get a sense that you're not just trying to get a convert here, but that there's something deep here and beautiful here and eternal here and unsearchable here. They may not and probably they will not agree with everything that we have to say, but people will get the sense that we're not just superficial Christians. Even when we're sharing with them just the very basic things of God, they will get a sense that Christ is a very deep well. So again I say, let us immerse ourselves in the depths of the unsearchable riches of Christ because the consequences of our doing so aren't just about our lives. When you later today make a decision whether or not you are going to spend your time plumbing into the depths of Christ or spending your day the way that you want to spend your day, the consequences of that decision aren't just about you. They're not just about me. They're about other people. Because the more we plumb into there, the more we'll be prepared and compelled to go into the world. I'm going to do this. Would that help us? Hopefully, we're going to get a new sound system in a couple weeks, and hopefully that will stop happening. So the first thing that the Apostle Paul was compelled to reveal and proclaim was the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then the second thing that I said was the plan of God for the nations of the world. Or as he put it in verse 9, please look there with me at verse 9. He said that he felt compelled to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And the reason I think that that plan is the plan of God for all the nations of the world, is because of verse 6. And if you'll look there with me, please. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews, is the implication. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. So, the plan of God for the the nations of the world, as expressed in Ephesians 2.11-3.13, is one of those deep oceans that we ought to be exploring in Christ and that we ought to be expressing in our presentations of Christ. Even as Paul was compelled to talk about these things with people who, at least in the beginning, had no idea what he was talking about, I think that we too ought to think about talking about these things when we share the gospel with lost people. We should not be too superficial, even with lost people, when we're the gospel with them. The gospel is a great and glorious and global thing that comes from God Almighty and that He has been bringing to fruition over many, many thousands of years. And friends, we should not shirk back from telling that story even to people who are lost. The gospel is a mighty thing. It's a massive thing. And please listen, we should not present it so that it comes across to people as though it's just a little pond out in a field somewhere. The gospel is not a pond. It's a vast ocean. It's a a, a limitlessly deep ocean. And we should express it to people in such a way they get a sense that it is great, that it is very deep, and that it is the dominating force in all of life. We'll never be able to do that if we don't plumb into these depths ourselves. Now, I'll be honest with you. Until this week, I have never thought of Ephesians 2.11-3.13, through which we've been considering for four or five weeks now, as an evangelistic tract. Has has it occurred to you that way as we've gone through it? It hasn't occurred to me that way at all. That it was meant to prepare us to share the Gospel with other people. But if I'm reading Paul right here, he says that one of his duties in his ministry was to reveal to lost people, to the nations, the plan of God for the nations. 
And so even as Paul felt compelled to express it, I think that we should familiarize ourselves with these things and learn to express it to lost people. And I'll even be more honest with you this morning, I have no idea how that actually looks. If I was to walk up to a lost person out on the street this morning and tell them about the plan of God for the nations, I'm really not sure what I would say. Because I'm just beginning to think through this. It just dawned on me this week that this was part of the Gospel for Paul. Part of how he shared the Gospel with people. But what I would say to us this morning is let's become really familiar with this stuff. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, it is another place where he goes into great detail about these things. We ought to become very familiar with them and pray to God and ask Him to help us as we learn to express these things in our Gospel presentations. One practical example that I do know of that might help us is if you'll turn with me to Acts 17. And we'll just spend a couple minutes here and then we'll be done for the morning. Acts 17, starting in verse 22. Paul was speaking here at a place called the Areopagus, which was a very influential and important intellectual center in the city of Athens. And when he stood to speak to lost people, to Greek people, here's what he said. Verse 22. Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So it looks like they were just covering all their bases, huh? They just wanted to make sure that whatever gods were out there, they had some kind of altar to them. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might find their way toward Him and find Him. Now, you know what I would say? Paul is preaching to them about the sovereignty of God here. He's talking to them about the existence of God, the creatorship of God, the sovereignty of God. Very deep oceans, but he's expressing it in an accessible way. And then he continues, Yet He, God, is not actually far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed His offspring." But then, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands people everywhere to repent. And that would assume sin, right? There's nothing to repent of if you haven't sinned. So Paul is talking to people who don't know the gospel about sin right off the bat. He's telling them, repent, repent, repent. And then in verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And then the Bible goes on to tell us that some people heard that message and believed Other people wanted to hear more, and so Paul came back day after day and explained these things to them. Well, you can see from Acts 17 that Paul is not exactly following the outline of Ephesians 2 and 3, is he? He's not going point by point right through Ephesians 2 and 3. 
But if you stop to think about what he's saying here, the foundational work of Ephesians 2 and 3 and, and also Romans 9, 10, and 11 are all over what he said to the people in Athens. The deep roots of what Paul said in this chapter are in Ephesians 2 and 3 and also in Romans 9 through 11. So somehow Paul was just dominated by this vision of what God was doing in the nations and he found ways to express that even to lost people. Remember I said to you a few weeks ago, God does not always come to where we are, but He expects us to come to where He is. Well, I think sometimes when we share the Gospel, we need to stop worrying so much about going to where the person is and just tell them where God is and, and trust the Holy Spirit to wake them up to the beauty and to the plan of God for the nations. We do not have to market the Gospel and make it palatable for modern people. We tell the Gospel as it is, and we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to come down and help people to believe. Now, I'm just about out of time. just want to take, though, two more minutes to put one more crucial idea on the table that, Lord willing, I will try to develop in more detail next week. But this is a really crucial point that I just couldn't end without saying this. And that is this. None of what we have talked about today is possible without the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. We cannot do anything that I have mentioned today without Him. It's impossible to plumb into the unsearchable depths of Christ without the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? It's impossible on our own. And it's impossible for us to leave this room today and to have the beautiful, glorious gospel on our lips and share with lost people without the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. We desperately, desperately need Him. We haven't been designed to do this alone. We weren't meant to do this alone. God has given us His Holy Spirit. And as I said, hopefully, if the Lord is willing next week, I'll say much more about that. But for now, I just want us to remember that He is divine and we are the branches. And without Him, we can do nothing. But if we abide in Him and He abides in us, all things are possible for us. We will be able to plumb the unsearchable riches of Christ with His help. We will be able to take the gospel on our lips and go out into the world and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ with His help. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So, in the power of Christ, friends, go. Go into the world and share the gospel with everybody that you know. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank You for the unsearchable riches of Christ. We thank You that forever and ever and ever and ever, we will be searching You out and we will never come to the end of You. All eternity is not enough time to explore all that You are. And we thank You for who You are. Now we pray that by Your grace You would help us to plumb into the depths of Your being, Jesus. We pray that You would help us to know more about You and to love You with more passion, to love You with more steadfastness. We pray that You would help us to take up our crosses and die to our way of life that we might live to Your way of life. And Lord God, as we plumb into the depths of who You are, we pray that You would give us the gracious ability to speak of who You are with passion and with authenticity. And we pray that many people would come to know Christ. Oh Lord, again I pray that this room would be like a womb, that people would come in dead and leave made alive with Christ, born again for the glory of Your name. Oh Lord, please hear us and please help us. We are so grateful for what You have done in our lives. And now we want by Your help to help someone else experience the same grace that we have also experienced. 
And so now, Lord, I pray that you would go with us and send us in the power of the Spirit for the glory of your name. And it is in your name that I pray these things. Amen.